China lied, people died. Dyson's impressive contribution to patient care. And today, we'll be putting the numbers into perspective. Hi, and welcome to the show. Today is March 30th, 2020, and I'm Dr. Michael Zagoda for the Spyro Podcast. On March 27th, President Trump, at his daily coronavirus task force briefing, shared how he and President Xi from China had a one-hour-long, meaningful, and productive conversation. He went on to say how much respect he had for President Xi. This, after the Chinese Communist Party tried to pin the coronavirus on the American military. I'm sure there is some political jujitsu going on there, but what we can do is look at some numbers. That's what we do here on the Spyro Podcast. We ignore the media's attempts to practice medicine without a license and ask some poignant questions. And then we follow that up with data. So if the numbers that China published to the World Health Organization were actually accurate, then the world would not be in the situation at all. This is why it took so long in the first place for the World Health Organization to even declare a pandemic, because China's numbers of the spread really was not that impressive, especially when you look at it according to previous epidemic standards. Furthermore, China was telling the World Health Organization that they found no human-to-human transfer of the virus. If China's numbers were true, the rest of the world would have barely had a blip on their healthcare systems. So how do we know that China lied? Leading to the deaths of thousands of people that could have otherwise been spared. Let's take a look at China's numbers, how they really don't make sense, and what the numbers are more likely to be based on what the rest of the world is enduring at this time. The Wuhan virus is summarized to have originated as an animal-to-human contagion from either a bat or a pangolin. If you don't know what a pangolin is, go back and listen to episode 8. Reports claim that documents leaked from the Chinese Communist Party show that the Chinese government knew about the novel coronavirus as early as late November. They did not report their first case until January 10th. It is well known that a purposeful cover-up by the Chinese Communist Party then went on for at least a month until late December when international reporters were able to get the word out about what was happening in China. Once the U.S. and Europe heard about this in December, they offered help that was adamantly refused by China. A study published last week indicated that if Chinese authorities had notified the rest of the world three weeks earlier than they did, the number of coronavirus cases could have been reduced by 95% and its geographic spread limited. Instead, the Chinese government allowed 5 million people to evacuate from Wuhan, China. This is almost half of the entire population of a city of 11 million people. This was the beginning of the rapid distribution of the virus all across Europe, now the United States, even South America. It's gone everywhere. Anyway, China then claims that over the next 100 days, they were able to contain the virus to only about 81,000 people with less than 3,300 deaths. That means that China had only two deaths per 1 million people. Meanwhile, the rest of the world has been between 6 and 124 deaths per 1 million people. Italy has 154 deaths per 1 million people as of this morning. Keep in mind that the density of Wuhan is five times higher than that of even New York City. And now in just two weeks... New York City is three-fourths of the way to the 81,000 number. I'm really finding it hard to believe that only 81,000 COVID-positive people over three months in China 
especially coming out of a concentrated city of 11 million people, is a real number. So I contacted a physician friend of mine through a chat room I'm on. He actually practices in Wuhan, China. He has been living there almost his entire life. He told me that he thinks that the number that has been proposed is probably only one-tenth of the real number. He also believes that the death rate in China is completely inaccurate. He thinks the number of deaths is much closer to 160, maybe even 180,000. That number is several magnitudes away from the 3,300 deaths reported by the Chinese Communist Party. This is only speculation on his part based on his experience as a critical care physician actually taking care of patients at the bedside in China. When you are in the middle of the battle, of course, perceptions can be skewed. So, how can we determine if my friend's perception is accurate? Let's do some simple back-of-the-napkin math. I'm going to be throwing out a lot of numbers, just kind of try to take these in little by little. I'm going to be coming back to those again, so you don't have to try to memorize these numbers or anything. Anyways, these numbers change so quickly now, just try to get a feel for it. But here we go. There are 1.34 billion people living in China. Now, on the regular old day, without any Wuhan virus, the normal Chinese death rate is 7.1 deaths for every thousand lives every single day. That means that in China, there are 975,000 people that die every day in China. This is long before the Wuhan virus, which has been confirmed by multiple organizations, um, is the real number. So it was then reported on several news outlets that the seven crematoriums run by the Chinese Communist Party were overwhelmed in China from the deaths attributed to the Wuhan virus. In a country that sees over 975,000 deaths every single day, how can an additional 3,300 deaths spread out over three months overwhelm crematoriums? These crematoriums turn out 500 bodies per oven per day. Their crematoriums have been backlogged for weeks. Furthermore, there were reports of mass graves for people that died from Wuhan virus. Again, if only 3,300 people died over three months, why were there mass graves and why were they needed to dispose of so many bodies? If we look at my Chinese friend's estimates that at least, say, 160,000 people died from the Wuhan virus, then it is much more plausible that crematoriums were backed up and mass graves were needed. Again, we have to recognize that there is no way that only 3,300 deaths occurred or that only 81,000 were infected in a country of 1.3 billion people. I'm truly convinced there is no way we can trust anything the Chinese Communist Party reports. They lied for a month before telling the world about the virulence and lethality of the virus, so why would we believe any of the numbers that they publish? Thousands of ash urns have been delivered to funeral homes throughout the area, especially in the virus epicenter Wuhan in recent days. I thought the epidemic was over with in China. Truth, it is just now that relatives are permitted to start picking up the remains of loved ones, further calling into question the true scale of the outbreak in China. Families of those who died of the virus were permitted to collect their relatives' cremated remains from seven government-run funeral homes with crematoriums beginning on March 23rd. Since then, there have been several photos of these really long lines outside of funeral parlors. They have circulated on Chinese social media and promptly were deleted by the regime's censors. At one of those facilities, the Hankou Funeral Home, trucks delivered about 2,500 urns on both Wednesday 
and Thursday. Chinese financial magazine uh, called KXN reported that one picture published by the outlet showed 3,500 urns that were stacked up by employees just inside the opening doors of the facility. Some families told Kayakson that they had to wait in line for upwards of five hours to pick up the ashes. The Hankow Funeral Home said it would endeavor to release 500 ash urns a day. At least this was according to Chinese news aggregator called uh, Taochio. The funeral parlor hopes to complete the task by tomb sweeping day on April 4th. This is a traditional Chinese festival when people visit the graves of their ancestors. So trying to get all this done before then. When the paper was contacted by funeral homes in Wuhan, staff of at maybe six or seven of the facilities did answer the phone, but none of them would give any information on how many urns were to be collected or that they were not permitted to even disclose the numbers at all. Officially, Chinese authorities have reported that over 2,000 deaths in Wuhan, where the virus first emerged, is all that's happened. However, experts and locals have long been skeptical of China's official figures. In light of Beijing's initial cover-up of the outbreak, why would we believe this? Also, why would Wuhan's overstretched health system of only 3,000 deaths really put that kind of strain on their huge system? See, this means that many more people had been unable to receive testing and treatment than what was initially reported, and several changes to the way infections were officially counted. You can even see on February 21st, there was this huge sudden spike in Wuhan positive patients in China. This is just because they decided to change how they were going to report. Obviously, it's because nobody was believing the numbers at that point. Earlier in February, a newspaper called the Epic Times, they conducted an undercover investigation calling all these funeral homes in Wuhan in order to understand the true death toll of the epidemic. At the time, that same Hankow funeral home confirmed that its crematorium was using 20 furnaces to create bodies 24 hours a day. The sudden rise in intake suggesting that more people were dying of the virus than officially reported. A friend of my Chinese physician colleague actually claimed a fellow Wuhan resident who lost his mother to the virus has yet to collect her remains. He told him that his local district authorities said that they would help families with doing paperwork, getting processing fees, and costs of ash urns waived, and even receiving discounts for burial plots, provided the tasks are completed before tomb sweeping day. After this date, such assistance could not be guaranteed. That seems awfully generous for a city of over 11 million with only 2,000 reported deaths from the Wuhan virus. So, Based on the overall death rate we've seen in China so far, the death rate of 3,300 is highly suspect. So what else can we look at and see if my friend's perception is even closer to reality than the Chinese Communist Party's claims? This is already a relatively long segment for today's show. So let's take a break here for just a second. Get your mind around some of these numbers and how this stuff really isn't making sense. And then we're going to look at a little tidbit of information that we've learned directly from Beijing themselves. Name a kind of doctor that you'd be shocked ask you to take your clothes off. I'm going to go with veterinarian, Steve. Sir, <laughs> 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 my dog is not feeling well. That'll be just fine. Take your clothes off. Yeah. It's gotta be up there. Veterinarian's gotta be up there. Yeah. What we're gonna look at next are cell phones. 
The digitization levels is very, very high in China. People cannot survive without a cell phone. It has been reported that dealing with the government for such things as pensions, social security, buying train tickets, shopping, no matter what people want to do, they are required to use the cell phones. This is how the state tracks everything that they do. Cell phones are an indispensable part of the Chinese life. The Chinese regime requires all Chinese to use their cell phones to generate a health code. Only with a green health code are Chinese even allowed to move to China right now. It's impossible for a person to cancel their cell phone. China actually introduced mandatory facial scans in December 2019 to confirm the identity of the person who registered the phone. And as early as September 1st in 2010, China required all cell phone users to register phones with their real identification by which the state can control people's speech via its large-scale monitoring system. Furthermore, Chinese people's bank accounts and social security accounts are bundled with their cell phone plans. Apps on Chinese phones check SIM cards against the state's database to make sure the number belongs to the user. Beijing first launched cell phone-based health codes on March 10th. All people in China must install a cell phone app and register their personal health information. Then, the app can generate a QR code. This appears in three colors to classify the user's health level. Red means the person has an infectious disease. Yellow, the person might have a disease. And green means, well, I guess they're okay. Beijing claimed that the health codes are intended to prevent the spread of the Wuhan virus. So now we see just how important a cell phone is to the Chinese population. With that in mind, let's look at some more numbers. Forget the speculation. Let's see how many cell phone accounts were canceled above baseline over the three months that China said they had only 3,300 deaths. February last year, the Chinese cell phone companies, all of which are overseen by the state, increased their membership by a total of 24 million per month. That means taking into account the number of cancellations that occur naturally from China's normal death rate, the rate of about 24 million deaths per month across the whole country. China has a birth rate of about 1.1 to 1. This means that for every death in China, there are about 1.1 births. Therefore, the 20 million before and after actually makes sense. Therefore, 24 million people with cell phones died natural deaths in February last year, while 48 million people were given new cell phone accounts. Think of this like social security numbers, as mentioned. 24 million new social security numbers were taken off of the roster, while 48 million more were added to the roster just in the month of February alone. This is 2019. Now, this March, it was reported that the net cell phone accounts decreased by 21 million over the three-month period. That means that more people died than were being born by about 7 million people per month when we look at the same time last year. Lots of numbers here. Let me make it super simple. In February last year, Chinese cell phone companies added 24 million new accounts. This February, at the peak of the Wuhan virus, they lost 7 million or even more accounts. I'm not saying that all 7 million or more were deaths. Many of these could have been migrant workers that were ordered to leave China, but it's also interesting that their landline accounts also decreased by 840,000 accounts. And those are definitely not migrant accounts. Also, in the same time last year, the landline accounts 
increased by over 6 million. These numbers are mind-blowing. China Mobile is the largest carrier holding about 60% of Chinese cell phone market in general. It actually reported that it gained 3.732 million more accounts in December 2019, but lost 862,000 in January 2020. And then in February, it lost 7.2 million. That's a huge change from month to month. Way more than what one would expect from, say, natural death. These numbers seem massive. But remember, this is from a country with a population of over 1. now 4 billion, 1.4 billion. 21 million cell phones dropping off is only a mere 1.5% of the entire population. Hardly even noticed. China Mobile, as mentioned, is the largest carrier, holding about 60% of all the Chinese cell phone market. So they're the ones that are, we're seeing the biggest changes. Keep in mind, though, China does allow each adult to apply for at most five cell phone numbers. Since February 10th, the majority of Chinese students have taken online classes with a cell phone number due to their schools being ordered to stay closed and whatnot. So these student accounts are under their parents' names, which means some parents may be needed to open a new cell phone account for their student. Again, I'm not saying that 21 million people died. I'm not even close to that number. I'm just saying I don't believe the numbers that China are telling us in terms of their infection and their death rates. So the big question is whether the dramatic drop in cell phone accounts reflects the accounts closing of those who have died due to the Wuhan virus, right? When we compare this Chinese situation to the situation in Italy, it also suggests the Chinese death toll is significantly underreported. Italy adopted similar measures to those used by the Chinese regime. The Wuhan virus death toll in Italy translates to a death rate of about 9%. That's really high. In China, where a much larger population was exposed to the virus, they reported a death toll of 4%. That is less than half of what Italy reported. Let's take a second and pull back here. Okay, at present, we do not know the details of the data. Let's think about this, though, realistically. Out of those 21 million cell phone cancellations, if only 8% of those were closed because the users died because of the Wuhan virus, which is the Italian and Spanish experience to date, the death toll would be a whopping 1.6 million people. If we're very conservative in how we think about it and say, you know, let's say only 1% of those cell phone and landline accounts were canceled because of death associated with the Wuhan virus. That means that 210,000 people would be expected to die. Lacking any retrospective data, the real death toll in China is going to be a mystery. The cancellation of 21 million cell phones provides a data point that suggests the real number may be far higher than the official number. When we look at the statistics surrounding the Wuhan virus, it is my opinion that we should completely ignore the data from any totalitarian government like that of North Korea, Iran, and China. They will only skew the data away from the truth. But I do believe my Chinese critical care specialist friend, his assessment of, say, 180,000 deaths is much closer to the truth than the 3,300 reported by the Chinese Communist Party. When I first started to put together this podcast, I was coming across so many articles that were just dark and depressing. 
And as I'm going through these things, I'm realizing this is not what we need right now to get us through our day-to-day and our management of our patients with Wuhan. What I am seeing is that there are few things that the world needs right now more than really smart people solving really big problems. We have seen some incredible information and innovation that has come out across the entire spectrum of healthcare. Things in the areas of engineering, pharmaceuticals, bedside care and management, staffing policies, and even supply chain optimization. Considering the size and scope of what we're facing right now, we could use plenty of this, especially when it comes to providing the equipment we need to help those who need it most. Fortunately for all of us, there are quite a few individuals and companies that have stepped up in different ways, from donating needed medical supplies, to partnering with other manufacturers, to building devices like ventilators. Apple has donated millions of masks, and to date has been upwards of 10 million masks now. And uh, Tesla CEO Elon Musk purchased 1,000 ventilators from China and had them shipped to Los Angeles. Now he's actually building ventilators. Then there's the effort from billionaires like Bill Gates and Mark Zuckerberg to bring more testing to Seattle and San Francisco, respectively. Ford's strategy of working with other companies like GE to help increase the pace of building ventilators is also widely known now. Of course, Building complicated life-sustaining devices like ventilators mm, takes time. That is why it's so impressive that Dyson, the company famous for its high-end vacuums and hand dryers, has introduced a brand new bed-mounted ventilator that runs on a battery and can be used in field hospitals like those being constructed in major cities like New York. The company says it has an order for 10,000 units from the UK government. GTEC, this is Dyson's competitor, has actually designed and built a ventilator in 24 hours that doesn't need any electricity to run. It only needs pressurized oxygen to work and is made with all off-the-shelf parts. According to a letter from the company's founder to its employees, James Dyson, says that the company's goal was to, quote, to design and build an entirely new ventilator, end quote. The new device is called the Covent, and it can be manufactured quickly, efficiently, and at volume. It is designed to address the specific clinical needs of a COVID-19 patient, and it is suited to a variety of other clinical settings. Working with the, quote, technology partnership, end quote, the company says it is working on how to quickly produce the ventilators once they are approved by the UK government. Dyson also says it will donate an additional 5,000 units to different countries. Those ventilators will come in handy in places that are quickly running out of beds. It's not an exaggeration to say that this is a life-and-death effort. As hospitals have become crowded with COVID-19 patients, companies are stepping up. Yes, Dyson is in the business of making things. It also happens to have a history of inventing new ways to build common devices that we use every single day. More important, however, is the company's willingness to move quickly towards solving a massive problem. Right now, life seems like it's at a standstill as many communities are literally shut down. People are either working from home or out of work entirely. All of that waiting can make it seem like we're living in slow motion. Except, we don't have time to waste. In fact, that's a valuable lesson for every entrepreneur and small business owner right now. That if we can solve big problems and do hard things when we move quickly, in these very difficult times, moving in the right direction, even if your company isn't building ventilators or donating masks, there's a good chance that there's something you can do right now for your team, your company, or your customers. Whatever it is, consider this example. Dyson has done in 10 days what most companies 
and the government said would take weeks, if not months. That's good news, since we really don't have that kind of time. We've seen the numbers. They're growing quickly. You see that New York City, northern New Jersey are just getting inundated with COVID-positive patients, and they're struggling to keep up with the demand, of course. But by looking at the epicenter, we can get more reliable feel for the data. What we're seeing to date is about a 1.4% mortality from the Wuhan virus in New York City and northern New Jersey. Although the numbers seem high, the death rate is still only about 105 deaths per 1 million people. At baseline in New York City, without the Wuhan virus, 1,300 people die of natural causes every single day. To date, less than 800 people in total have died in New York City from the Wuhan virus, but I'm sure this is going to go up pretty quickly. So by the time you listen to this, it may be even higher. The number of critically ill patients in New York City right now is estimated at about 3,100, with half of those currently in mechanical ventilation. Again, this number will increase. This is the thing to focus on, not the total number of infections. That's basically irrelevant. But instead, I prefer to look at the number of new infections per day. When we start to see the number of new infections per day in, say, New York, New Jersey area start to decline day over day, that means things are starting to turn around. The total doesn't matter. It's the rate of the infection. Even China is still having new Wuhan virus diagnosis each day. It is just getting less and less. Now that the new testing that's coming out, it's going to take less than 15 minutes or so to get the result. You're really going to start to see a spike because more and more tests are going to be offered and more and more people are going to get them. So let's take a second and look at some real numbers that matter to how things are going and what that means to us. Let's look at, say, the total number of active cases and how many of those active cases are what we call serious or critical. We'll say that these are ICU cases. I'm getting all of this information at worldometers.info. That's worldometers.info. France right now leads the world with 30,366 active cases, but 4,632 of those are serious or critical. That's a really high number. Spain is next with 58,000 active cases, and 4,100 of those are critically ill. Italy, 74,000 cases. Less than 4,000 of those are critically ill. Iran, again, we're not going to talk about Iran. We don't believe those numbers anyway. Let's go to the United States. In the United States, as of this recording, 135,000 active cases, 3,000 serious or critical. We're actually doing very well when you look at 135,000 actual cases, but only 3,000 are in serious or critical condition. Again, France, 30,000 active cases, almost 5,000 critical. United States, 134,000 cases, 3,000 critical. Much, much better. These are the numbers we should be focusing on. As we're starting to see, this number is going to increase, and as our healthcare system gets more and more tested and things start to get a little uglier across the country. We know that around the middle of April, right now it's estimated between April 18th and April 21st, that is when our country is going to hit our peak. That is when we are going to be most tested. Fortunately, we're having time to prepare. Our companies are making all the stuff that we need. We're getting ventilators in, we're getting masks, we're getting more PPE to keep our healthcare providers safe so that they do not get sick and that they can take care of the patients. 
So let's not worry about so much about the numbers and whatnot, knowing that we as a country are really doing pretty good. Again, stay at home, wash your hands, keep your social distancing, do your best. My son tells me that he went out to a park today and he said the park was packed. I was thinking, oh my gosh, in 10 to 12 days, I'm going to be seeing these people in my intensive care unit. Please stay home, do your part, because you are not going to be the one that gets hurt by this. It's going to be the other people that you spread the infection to that may end up in our ICU. Continue to be socially responsible. Let us get through this peak. We're going to come out of this in June and it's going to look like nothing ever happened. Our economy is going to start to pick up and our lives are going to get back to normal. We just got to stick through this. We can do it together. Now is the time of the show where we speak about something I like and something I don't like. I like Tiger King, currently on Netflix. With so much downtime at home, I found myself watching stuff I would never otherwise watch. Tiger King is one of those shows. In Tiger King, a filmmaker, his name is Rick Kirkman, he starts to explore the world of these big cat owners, centering on this one guy named Joe Exotic. He owns a cat farm in Oklahoma. It's as a roadside zoo, kind of like some of those alligator zoos you see when you're going down through Florida. This is a mulleted, gun-toting polygamist and country western singer. Wow, I mean, how do you put all this stuff together into one person? There's intrigue, LGBTQ issues, polygamy, firearms, and like I said, mullets galore. I had no idea there was such a demand for pets that can literally rip your face off in about a second. What would possibly possess anyone to cage these beautiful creatures when you see them on the show they're majestic. It's, you wonder, how can you cage something like this? But anyway, this guy is deeply narcissistic. He's eccentric. He's a sociopath that is completely self-confident. This makes for great TV. Naturally, there's no shortage of cameras throughout the entire park because the guy likes to film himself. Uh, there's all kinds of viewpoints from all different people that work there. There's some perspectives. There's a lot of stuff of deception going on and a total delusion throughout all these people. It's, it's really interesting to watch. The story is sparked actually by a feud between a woman named Carol Baskin. She actually uh, originates out of Tampa. He's in Oklahoma, but she owns this cat rescue, this big cat rescue. She's a big cat conservationist and tries to hold this Joe Exotic, this big cat breeder and dealer, accountable. Well, the angst gets intense. You see, the exotic animal market is absolutely saturated with corruption. The big cats viewed as, quote, mere commodities, they say. Their welfare, total afterthought. Stunning shots of these huge yawning lions and colorful tigers make for great transitions between these interviews and serve as a tragic reminder of the complete lack of respect afforded these magnificent animals. But as you watch these personalities unfold, you think, how is this even possible? Beyond the tragic existence of the big cats, the, the series, I should say, actually shines a light on the corrupting influence of money and how a simple feud can spiral so far out of control that the burning desire for revenge turns to attempted murder. Tiger King paints an unflattering portrait of humanity. 
Look, there's a lot of zookeepers that are around there that are just good old boys, and they are really down-to-earth, quality people that actually do care about the welfare of these animals. But it is a deeply compelling story that reflects some of the strangest aspects of our age. It really is crazy. Most of all, it's a story about cages. Cages for the animals and cages for their owners. If you're wondering if this series is really worth your time, just watch the first episode. You'll know in about 15 minutes if it's going to be worth your time or if you're going to enjoy it. It's definitely comfort food for your quarantined mind right now. Watch the first episode before you let your kids watch it, though. There are some surprising scenes that could be quite upsetting for some young eyes. Maybe the stress around this whole coronavirus thing has warped my mind, but I have found this series worth watching. It's like watching a building getting blown up for demolition. You know how it ends, but you just can't help but stand and wait around just to watch it happen. Now, something I don't like. I don't like politicians that practice medicine without a license. Trump should not be telling people to take chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine, but he actually really didn't do that. He just said that it seemed to work. Nevertheless, he should have left that to the medical professionals to share. But what's even worse than that is when a friend of mine that lives in New York City is a critical care specialist. He told me that back on February 2nd, this is a full month before the explosives spread in New York that several New York City politicians actually came out and publicly denounced the coronavirus as a threat and that New York City was, quote, well prepared, end quote, and the risk of corona getting to New York City was very low. These politicians said this against the specific advice from their local health department's advisors and even their closest internal advisors. They were literally begging the mayor and city council members to start mitigation policies as early as February 2nd. These calls to reason by their own advisors were ignored and shunned while telling their voters that what they are being told is, quote, a bunch of misinformation and racism. Racism? Huh. Not sure how that plays into virology and epidemiology, but if you don't believe me, I found a couple of audio clips here. This is not a political podcast, and I never want it to be. So I'm not going to bring out any specific names. But the first person you're going to hear is a city councilwoman in New York. And then you can hear a New York senator and then other influential politicians within New York. Credits to Tucker Carlson for the audio. The risk to New Yorkers for coronavirus is low and that our preparedness as a city is very high. There is no reason not to take the subway, not to take the bus, not to go out to your favorite restaurant, and certainly not to miss the parade next Sunday. I'm going to be there. But there's really no need to panic and to avoid activities that we always do as New Yorkers. We are a hearty people. As an Asian American, I've been somewhat disturbed, if not outright appalled, at some of the comments or gestures that I have seen. Diseases originate from anywhere or from particular places in the world. It's very important uh, that we recognize that this 
holiday and this festival is of tremendous uh, significance for many communities in our state. And uh, it is very important that we ensure that uh, we don't have misinformation. And many in the media have been covering uh, this issue uh, as if it's, you know, a terrible plague that uh, people have to avoid. Mm. I'm reminded of what the philosopher Aesop once said. He said, we hang the petty thieves and appoint the great ones to public office. Now, they're blaming Trump, they're blaming the federal government, they're blaming the airlines, they're blaming their own people. Furthermore, these same politicians are telling the world they don't have enough ventilators, while the doctors are saying they do. And apparently, there's a storehouse of over 2,500 ventilators in waiting within a warehouse in New York City. First, the politicians say, don't worry, don't be a racist. Then they say, we don't have enough, and the federal government is letting us down, leaving us in the lurch. When in fact... They have access to more supplies at their beck and call than anywhere else in the country. Instead of politicizing the dire circumstances that these doctors have to face now, now is the time for the politicians to shut up and let the real experts do their job. Throughout our history, when the politicians have tried to run the war, we lost, and we usually lost big. But when the generals are allowed to execute their game plan, we win, and we win big, in a decisive manner, without much room for criticism. We saw this in Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, and now with COVID. When the politicians use a crisis as a tool, people die. In this circumstance, the doctors are the generals. Let them do their job. I've watched a couple of daily briefings by uh, Governor Cuomo in New York, and to be honest, I think he's doing a good job. He's forthright, and the information he tells is how it is. He doesn't hold anything back. When necessary, he actually defers to the experts, and that is exactly what he's doing. He's following the advice of the healthcare experts. These low-level politicians in New York City actually have blood on their hands, and they will not be held accountable at all. Whereas physicians, if we make a wrong prediction and somebody dies, we get sued. Why is it that a politician can wrongfully tell us without any meaningful recourse that we have nothing to worry about or to even prepare for despite all the actual evidence and all the professionals and experts and doctors and scientists telling them otherwise? Whistleblower doctors in Wuhan were silenced and then, quote, died. The Minister of Health in Italy actually died from COVID-19 because he went and took care of patients. He's a hero to the Italian people. Meanwhile, the lies from China misled the world, and we are just now finding out how much more is needed to stop this. Don't believe politicians. Listen to the doctors, especially those on the front line. Like I said earlier, never ignore a tip from the jockey. The doctors have nothing to gain by lying. So, to my colleagues in New York, hang in there. And to the people of New York, please do not reelect these people that decide to practice medicine without a license. Hold them accountable. Please. Before we close, I want to take a minute and thank you for your support. The Spiral Podcast has been listed as the number one podcast this week on LinkedIn and is climbing the charts on the Apple Podcasts. We receive no funding 
I have no conflicts of interest, and I simply do this as a labor of love. So please keep listening from wherever you get your podcast and tell your friends. Please give us a five-star rating as it helps us move up the search results. And finally, let's leave today's podcast on a good note. I came across a poem from an Irish priest, Brother Richard Hendrick, entitled Lockdown. How much more appropriate than now? Then we'll close with an old Irish protest song, one directed at the politicians. His name was Christy Moore. Lockdown. Yes, there is fear. Yes, there's isolation. Yes, there's panic buying. Yes, there's sickness. Yes, there's even death. But they say that in Wuhan, after so many years of noise, you can hear the birds again. They say that after just a few weeks of quiet, the sky is no longer thick with fumes, but blue and gray and clear. They say that in the streets of Sisi, people are singing to each other across the empty squares, keeping their windows open so that those who are alone may hear the sounds of family around them. They say that a hotel in the west of Ireland is offering free meals and delivery to the housebound. Today, a young woman I know is busy spreading flyers with her number throughout the neighborhood so that the elders may have someone to call on. Today, churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples are preparing to welcome and shelter the homeless, the sick, and the weary. All over the world, people are slowing down and reflecting. All over the world, people are looking at their neighbors in a new way. All over the world, people are waking up to a new reality, to how big we really are, to how little control we really have, to what really matters, to love. So we pray and we remember that yes, there is fear, but there does not have to be hate. Yes, there is isolation, but there does not have to be loneliness. Yes, there is panic buying, but there does not have to be meanness. And yes, there is sickness, but there does not have to be disease of the soul. And yes, there's even death, but there can always be a rebirth of love. Wake to the choices you make as to how to live now. Today, breathe. Listen behind the factory noises of your panic. The birds are singing again. The sky is clearing. Spring is coming. And we are always encompassed by love. Open the windows of your soul, and though you may not be able to touch across the empty square, sing. I'm an ordinary man, nothing special, nothing grand. I've had to work forever at my own. Never asked for a lot, I was happy with what I got. My family in my home They say the times are hard And they've handed me my cards They say there's not the work to go around When the whistle blows The kids will finally close Tonight they're gonna shut this factory down Then they'll tear it down I never missed a dinner Strike for better pay For twenty years I served the best I could With a handshake and a check It seems easy to forget Loyalty to the bad times and the good The owner says he's sad To see that things have got so bad But the captains of industry won't let
cigar and he drives a brand new car. Still he takes his family on a cruise. He'll never lose. It seems to me such a cruel irony. He's richer now than ever he was before. Now my check is spent and I can't afford the rent. One law for the rich, one law for the poor. Every day I've tried to salvage some of my pride. To find some workers that might pay my way. But everywhere I go, the answer's always no. No work for anyone here today. No work today. Just an ordinary man Like thousands beside me in the queue I watch me darling wife Try to make the best of life God knows what the kids are going to do Now we're faced With this human waste A generation cast aside 